This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. For two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. What are key leadership qualities for a digital age? How can we become a mindful leader? And what tools and practices can be employed to better lead ourselves, our teams, and our organizations? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Jacqueline Carter, co-author with Rasmus Hugard of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. Well, Jacqueline, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be here. So before we delve into your book, The Mind of the Leader, what is leadership and how does it differ from managing? I think there are a lot of different answers to that question. What I would say is that anyone can be a leader. Anyone that is inspiring to others, anyone that feels that they have a vision and somewhere that they can help other people if other people so choose to follow them. Whereas management is more of a title. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the things that we've seen is management is more what you do. I think leadership is more who you are and how you show up. And leadership, I think, is something that you... You earn. You may be in a leadership role, but for you to really consider me your leader, I think that's something of a privilege and something that I need to demonstrate to you that I'm actually worthy of that title. That's great. So it's a nice distinction. And as you were putting a book together, and I know you've, you, you and your co-author did a lot of research on this book, but I'm wondering what are some of the key challenges that you have seen in, in developing your work that leaders face today? It was actually one of the reasons why we wrote the book, because we've been working so with Potential Project, we've been working with leaders for over the past decade. And what we really saw is that over the last two or three years, that leadership, quite honestly, it's getting really tough to be a leader today. And I think any of the listeners can probably relate to this. But a combination of, you know, first of all, we know that the world is changing so quickly. There's not an industry, and it's really quite amazing. There's not an industry that isn't facing some kind of technology disruption. In addition to that, we know that we're inundated with distractions. We're working in environments where we're on all the time, which is actually not good for the brain, which we can focus on in a little bit. But we're inundated with distractions. And also, I think that, you know, we know that in terms of the next generation the, of, of workers, they're not necessarily as committed or as loyal as we might have been. I know in my early days in when I started with Deloitte Consulting many years ago, I was so happy to have that job and have that role. 
And I wanted to stay for as long. I worked late. I didn't mind. And I think now, quite rightly, I think, because I think it's a human characteristic, but workers today, they have a lot more opportunity. They have a lot more flexibility. They can work from their living room and work for any company in the world. So they, good good talent, I think, and everybody knows this, they're looking to say, well, what do you actually have for me? And so I think that we're seeing that in the engagement scores. And you take all of these factors, and in addition to that, we know that a lot of organizations are focused very much on short-term results. So the quarterly earnings reports get a lot of pressure. I think that you combine all of those things, and I think it's just more difficult for leaders today to be successful than it was even five, ten years ago. It's fascinating. You're absolutely right. And, you know, um, given the research you did for the book, um, and it really goes to the heart of what you're talking about. What can leaders today, with all the things you just described, what types of qualities have you identified, um, mental qualities, stand out in certain leaders? Yeah, what we saw, and it was really wonderful, and as you mentioned, we did a ton of research, and I just want to mm -hmm. shout out to appreciation for all of the C-suite executives. We interviewed over 250 wow. C-suite executives. We did assessments of 35,000 leaders from around the globe. We did um, survey assessments of mm -hmm. over 1,000 from 72 countries. So it was, I just really want to appreciate the time and the commitment that we had in terms of engaging with leaders in these questions. And they were really interested to share with us both their challenges and what we really saw, and especially at the C-suite level. What we really kept on seeing was this ability to be mindful, which really means the ability to be, be here and be present was the first quality. The second quality, which was really amazing to us, is this idea of being selfless. This idea, the leaders that we spoke to that said, if I let my ego drive me, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so one of the biggest things for me is to keep my ego in check. So selflessness. And the third quality, bringing in this idea of compassion, which many people might think as being soft and flaky, but in the leaders that we interviewed, what they said is, you know, compassion is actually strategic because... If we take care of our people, ultimately, we'll be able to be more successful in how we support our customers and our clients and, and everything that we need to do. So your book, The Mind of the Leader, explains how by applying these qualities that you just noted, mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion, first to yourself, then to the people you lead, and then to your ultimately to your organization, will lead to extraordinary results. Um, I'd like to go through each one of these different mental qualities that you talked about. And first, why is it critically important and almost foundational to understand how you lead and who you are? I think that uh, when we looked at a lot of leadership development programs today, they will start with external factors, mm -hmm. like how good you are at strategy or how good you are at marketing or how good you are at finance, all really important qualities. But it's kind of like building a house and starting with a roof. If you don't fundamentally understand who you are and how you show up, and most importantly, and this is really the mind of the leader gets into how your mind actually works, then you're really missing out on the opportunities to be able to dive deeper into how you want to show up. What is your vision for yourself as a leader? What are the values that are important to you? And Based on those values and that vision that you have for yourself of what kind of leader you want to be, how can you actually make sure that you work towards achieving those? And I think specifically for a lot of leaders, what we saw is that what got you here won't get you there. 
So leaders who are really successful rising up through the ranks in their career, they get to this inflection point where all of those great things that they were really good at, maybe they were really good at you know, strategy or maybe they were a creative type or maybe they were really good at engineering. And when they get put in that, that one leadership role where now they actually have to get others to be creative, others to be able to develop the projects and tools and systems, it takes a different mind. And so to start with understanding your own mind and understanding your own journey and what you need to do, that's really why we see starting with the mind is the critical path for leaders to be able to develop into the kind of leader they want to be. What are the reasons for when many leaders start to feel powerful, they lose the qualities that we're talking about? Why is that the case? Yeah, this was really interesting and in looking at the research in terms of what happens from a neurological perspective as we start to rise up the ranks, one of the things that naturally happens to us is that our ego, because we all have one, starts to think, I'm pretty important. Mm -hmm. And you can think of it, you know, as a leader, you're standing up there, you're the one who's doing the presentation, you're the one that people are coming to. It's just very natural for your ego to start telling you, wow, you're special. And it actually feeds into what actually is detrimental to us to be able to better engage our people. Because if I start to think I'm something special, I'm really important, it makes it more difficult for me to recognize that leadership isn't about me. Because <laughs> if it's all about me, I shouldn't be in a leadership role. Leadership is actually about us. How can we achieve the results that we need to achieve together? And so that was one of the things that was really interesting that we saw about how specifically challenging it is for us as leaders to keep our ego in check. And specifically, what we saw is the research that shows the downside of having a big ego in leadership. And specifically, the first thing is that if you have a big ego, it's really, you're really vulnerable to criticism. So first of all, if somebody says, you know, Jacqueline, I don't like you, if I have a big ego, it's like, ouch. The second thing that's a downside of big ego and leadership is that you're easily susceptible to manipulation. So if you know I have a big ego and that's really important to me, you could say, Jacqueline, you know, you should do this because it'll make you look good and I'll be like following along or don't do that, Jacqueline. And so you can see how people could easily manipulate you. The third thing is we know that one of the things from a brain perspective is that if we have a big ego, we're more susceptible to see things the way our ego wants us to see them. It's called confirmation bias. And so it makes us more narrow-minded. And finally, ego, having a big ego, if it's all about me, it can corrupt my behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's just a whole bunch of downsides of ego. And like I said, but it's natural. It's just if you did not start to develop a big ego as you rose up in the ranks of leadership, you would be odd from a brain perspective. So it's nice to say, oh, I want to be a humble leader, but it's hard. And I think that's one of the key things that was so inspiring is recognizing the downsides of ego and recognizing bringing humility into your leadership is something you really have to be intentional about. Now, as an aside, as a question, as a follow-up there, as you were doing your research, did you run across many folks who were in leadership capacities in those roles who were actually sort of living this particular perspective? Many. Okay. And that was really, I would say, it, it was interesting because when we set out to do the research, we were looking for what leadership qualities are going to be successful, as you articulated earlier in your question. Selflessness was something we didn't expect to see. We were pretty sure mindfulness was going to be one of the qualities, and it's also something that we've been focused on for a 
the past decade in terms of supporting leaders develop. But selflessness really came out, people like Dominic Barton, who is the uh, global managing partner for, for McKinsey, it was one of the first thing he said to us is that I know if I walk into the room and it's all about me, if I don't leave my ego at the door, I do not learn anything because I don't, I'm not listening with open ears. I'm listening with the idea of what's in it for me and how can this be about me and how can this confirm what I already believe to be true. And so, and this was over and over again, we saw leaders talk about how important it was for them to make sure that they that they really were intentional about making it about others. Mm-hmm. And that goes into the next question I have, which is, it was interesting, in the book, you, you, you folks claim that workplace initiatives mm-hmm. um, geared or designed to increase engagement and uh, productivity, productivity usually focus on sort of external satisfaction, but not truly what motivates people in the long term. What do leaders need to understand as to what truly motivates folks? Yeah. So we are all, from a human being perspective, we all want to be happy. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of our most basic human drivers after we have, you know, our food and shelter and all of those things. And we're all looking for purpose and meaning in life. This goes back to early days. And so I think that those external drivers, you know, things like, you know, uh, free food in the cafeteria or, you know, a foosball table, they're nice to have, but they don't fundamentally feed our soul in terms of what we're actually looking for in terms of feeling connected, feeling like what I do matters. And what was really interesting for us, and Marriott was one of the great examples of this, and um, for those of you who have ever stayed in a Marriott property, one of the things that we find so fascinating is even if you talk to a housekeeper, they will, when they see you in the hallway, my experience is they look you in the eye and they actually say, how are you today? As opposed to in other hotel properties, which I won't mention, but you know, the housekeeping stuff, they look down. They don't even want to engage with you because they feel that they're not an equal human being. And in our experience, when people show up and actually feel pride in their job. And they feel pride to be able to serve you because they know they're important. You can see the difference not only in how they show up, but in how they make you feel. And so I think in answer to your question, what leaders need to understand is that people want to be people want to be connected. People don't want to be disengaged, right? So we have these tremendous um, right now in terms of the Gallup poll showing how disengaged people are. People don't want to come into work and not be engaged. So what we need to understand is that in order for people to feel engaged, they need to feel like what they do matters. They need to feel purpose. And that ultimately leads to people feeling more satisfied, more happy with what they what they do, no matter what level in the organization. So another follow-up, it goes back to the challenges you so eloquently outlined and you know, the changing nature of work and how we work. Um, and you point out that um, you know, some of these external um, in, initiatives or uh, uh, benefits are are interesting, but they're short term. What do you do about that meaning and connection when work may be decentralized? Folks are doing it in their own little hive. They're doing it everywhere. You don't need to be in a physical location with fellow team members. When you were doing your research, did that particular issue come up and what were you finding? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another one of the drivers that's making connection at work so difficult. Yeah, it's making it harder because we're working in global teams, different time zones, um, Skype, you know, know, and and any other Mm -hmm. 
video tools, it doesn't replace the connection that we feel when we are face-to-face. It's just a completely different interaction. But I think that in addition to that, what we saw with so many organizations was that when leaders are busy and when they have a busy mind, and honestly, most leaders do, is that it makes it that much more difficult to be present. It makes it that much more difficult to be connected. And I think one story, if I could just share with one of the leaders that we spoke with, and actually this was a leader that we worked with, and he basically a really smart guy, finance guy, knew the numbers inside out, spreadsheets was his thing. He was great, rose up the ranks, very senior guy. But he kept on getting 360 reviews that sucked, basically Mm -hmm. feedback that was like, your people, they follow you because you're smart and you have great answers, but... They just don't feel that, you know, you have the leadership qualities that are human, basically. And out of desperation, um, he was strongly encouraged to (laughs) – he was willing but somewhat uh, uh, encouraged – Begrudgingly. Begrudgingly to to spend time with us and actually engage with us in in the mind training that we do to be able to help develop specifically a greater ability to be more present. And what was really interesting about this guy is, as I said, he had been really challenged by this feedback. And he was a spreadsheet guy. And he used to keep track of every time – so if you came into his office, you know, he would say, well, I just spent, you know – 20 minutes with Michael. So if Michael comes back and says, I'm not a good leader, I can have this spreadsheet that shows this data of how much time I spent. And what happened to him is after a series of weeks of really, and this is about rewiring the brain, training himself to be able to be more mindful, to be more present with people, what he found is a dramatic change in terms of how people perceived him. They found him to be more engaging. They found him to be more present. And the difference was what he realized is that when he was with somebody, he was truly with them as opposed to in the past. Instead of listening to their voice, oftentimes he was listening to the internal narrative in his own mind that would say things like, I know the answer to your question before you've even finished answering it because he was a smart guy. Or I know what you're going to say. You always say the same thing. When he was able to shut off the internal narrator and really be present, people could feel it. And they, what was amazing, getting back to the spreadsheets, what he found was that after he'd done the training, he spent less time with people and got better reviews Mm -hmm. because he was there. So this quality, and we all know this. And we all have this basic ability to be truly present. But when you talk about connection and whether it's, it's harder when it's through, you know, media, different media technology, but we know the difference when somebody is really present with us. We know when somebody asks, how are you today? And they actually want an answer. And when you say, okay, they ask you a follow-up question, why just okay? We know that. Mm-hmm. So bringing back, I think, more of those human qualities of caring for each other and connecting with each other and having the patience to stay for the answer. (laughs) How can you become a mindful leader? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. How do state social services agencies use technology to meet their missions? How is the state of Florida doing just that? What can other states learn from the work of the Florida Department of Children and Families? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more 
with Joe Vistola, Chief Information Officer at the Florida Department of Children and Families. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring leadership with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. So Jacqueline, according to your work, why must leaders start with self-leadership in order to be more effective? What we found is that, again, getting back to so many different leadership development programs, is they'll often do 360s and often give you a whole bunch of data and feedback around how people perceive you. And that can be useful and that's important, but it doesn't necessarily help you in terms of what do you actually do with that? And so, and it's a great, another great story in the book, uh, Vincent, who is the CEO of, of New West Bank um, coming out of California, and he talked about how for him, his leadership journey was, he's again, a very successful guy. And, and from his perspective, very self-aware. And what he realized was that although people could articulate the behaviors that they found either challenging or, or helpful or not so helpful, for him, it really wasn't until he went into the mind, his own mind that he could actually see what they were talking about and make the changes. And I think it really gets into one of the things that I think is really exciting is that our researchers have now shown that our brain is plastic. So we can rewire our brain. The other thing that we know is that it's hard to do. We, especially as we age, we get pretty set in our ways, including set in how we see the world and how we think about things. And so for a leader that is really committed to making a change, it's more than just, yeah, you know, Michael, people see you maybe as not the most collaborative leader. What do you do with that? And what we believe and what we've seen is that what you need to do with that is you need to actually dive in, not just self-awareness, but really awareness of how your mind works and how you can actually, by understanding your mind better, then to be able to better lead your mind better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, in your book, um, you come up with the MSC leadership uh, model, as I would like to refer to it, and obviously mindfulness is, is the first quality. And you talked a little bit about it earlier. But I think I'd be remiss if we didn't delve a little deeper. What is mindfulness and how does it relate to managing, really managing one, one's attention? And what are the two qualities that make mind, mindfulness happen? Yeah. So basically mindfulness, the simplest definition is being here now. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to being unfocused, as opposed to being distracted, which is the first quality. So this quality of being focused, being fully present. Mm-hmm. The second quality of being aware. And really what awareness means is I'm aware of what's going on in my external landscape, but really being aware of what's going on in my internal landscape so that I'm not just falling um, into habits and habitual behaviors. And I'm also, to the extent that I can be, and that's a really important phrase, to the extent that I can be, aware of how I might be driven by ego biases, which you talked about earlier, or other biases, which we know so many of our biases are based on unconscious ways that our brain tells us that person doesn't look like you, you should be afraid of them. And we have to be able to overcome that. 
So what mindfulness actually does is mindfulness enables you to be present with your own mind and to be able to have the opportunity to cultivate greater focus so that your mind isn't susceptible to wandering, which our minds naturally wander, but in our workplaces, it's even worse. And then secondly, the mindfulness training, and there's two different types of training that you do to develop focus as opposed to the other type of training, which is to really be able to open your awareness to the landscape of what's going on in your mind. So how is self-awareness, how is it the foundation of self-leadership? I mean, why is that the case? Well, and I would say it really probably speaks to both focus and awareness. One, if I'm not focused, so one of the things we talked about and we really saw with the successful leaders is this idea of survival of the focused. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, if you are not focused, and most of the leaders that we met, they were pretty darn good at focusing. But in addition to that, focus is not just about being able to focus on one thing and not multitask, which is a big part of why we're, many people are in and a, a problem, and a big problem, out, which I thought was fascinating. But in addition to that, this idea of mental agility, so being able to shift your focus, right? We talked about the complexity and why leaders are facing such challenging times today. What we really saw is leaders that could be agile in terms of how they shifted their focus. I'm here, now I'm here. That was amazing to us. And I think a really, and it's trainable. Mm-hmm. So that's really that quality of not just focus, but mental agility. But I would say in terms of self-awareness, the other thing, and just to give you another example of that, you know, self-awareness, one of the other CEOs that we spoke with, Mara McCaffrey, who is the CEO of Health New England, a health um, insurance agency. And what mindfulness really helped her do is she was able to start to see that oftentimes when she would walk into a leadership team meeting, she would be so enthusiastic about what she wanted to do and what she thought the organization should do that she left everybody else behind. And so, but it, but she couldn't understand it because as a leader, I mean, that is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to bring the vision. You're supposed to bring enthusiasm. You're supposed to bring passion. But her passion bias actually made it more difficult for her to see other people weren't, they weren't on board. She was 10 steps ahead of them. And the mindfulness training enabled her to, one, realize, okay, that's what's happening. It enabled her to be able to slow down, to speed up, to really be able to take a couple steps back and say, okay, how do I need to show up differently to still get the same outcome, which is getting everybody on board and sharing the vision in a way that's going to be meaningful, but how do I need to show up differently to be able to help them get there so that they can create that journey for themselves as opposed to me just being off in the clouds from their perspective? And your book does a terrific, I mean, there's a lot of practical um, recommendations on how to do a training on how to become more mindful. So uh, it was it was excellent in that respect. But I like to switch gears to selflessness. Mm-hmm. Why is that an important quality, in your view, for an effective leader? I'd say it's a lot about what we spoke about earlier. This idea of being getting yourself out of the way. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that's really important about when we talk about selflessness, it's not about being a doormat. It's not about that, you know, it's all about everybody else. And that's one of the things when we talk again about um, starting with yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, you are not going to be good to anybody else. And so selflessness is really about making sure that in everything that you do, you're taking care of yourself, you're mindful, and that enables you to be able to then recognize it's not about you, but you take care of yourself so then you can really show up and be of best service to others. And so it really is this idea of 
making sure that in everything you do, you're getting your ego out of the way and looking for ways to be of service. When you were doing your research, um, to what extent did you see in your research leaders who were expressing or manifesting selflessness? It's a great question. And I would say that it's hard. As I talked about earlier, we know that leadership actually most of the time directs us in the opposite direction. It was amazing to us the number of leaders, especially the leaders that we really saw in organizations that had high engagement scores. Mm -hmm. It was really there that we saw the qualities of humility and gratitude really come out so strongly in terms of what leaders that recognized it wasn't about them and rep- and putting in a real sense of gratitude real sense of when you when when you you know you're looking for opportunities to recognize what the team has done for you so you know simple examples of you know leaders that just show up and just think everything just magically happens but leaders that you know take the time to say you know thank you for the bottle of water you know thank you for setting up this time today and really making it an intention to bring more sense of of gratitude into their everyday leadership. And so in answer to your question, we were shocked with how many leaders we saw that really modeled that 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 mantra of being able to knowing it's not about them and trying to keep their own ego in check. So when you're providing uh, mindfulness training or leadership training, if you get a question from someone who's thinking, you know, it's really nice, it's aspirational to be a selfless leader. Yes. But how do I mitigate? And, I, and, and they come to you with all sincerity. It's not about finding a way to manipulate the situation, but how do I not become a pushover? Mm-hmm. So how, what are your suggestions about being a selfless leader, but not being construed as a pushover? And I think, again, it gets back to why I think it's hard. Um, I think it's a nice aspirational quality. And just so you know, I should say we in our journey have met many leaders that are not selfless. Um, But what we found, I would say, first of all, I would say that in the organizations where we've seen leaders that were not exhibiting qualities of selflessness, we found that people might follow them for a certain period of time, but that they wouldn't stay with them for long. And especially, you know, and again, maybe five, ten years ago they would have, but not now. They, just not now. People will get what they need, but they see that person is not interested in me. They're interested in their own gains, so they're not going to have long-term fellowship. But in answer to your question, I think it is really, well, it's back to, you know, training the mind. So what we know is that, again, you know, from neuroplasticity, we know that our mind can be trained. And so the key thing in terms of for a leader that genuinely says, I want to be able to bring more selflessness into my leadership, and I don't want to be a pushover, but I really want to be able to do that, it's it's training. It's intention and then training. And at the same time, what you bring up is so important because – a pushover, like that's not helping anyone. So if you just allow everybody to just walk all over you, you're not going to be a leader for very long. So that's important, that distinction between those I, two. I would like to go back to um, – because I found it very, very interesting, the whole conversation in your book around uh, neuroplasticity. Yes. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more, maybe a little bit more of the uh, medical angle, if you will? W- what actually happens? You, you actually can change, change your brain chemistry? Exactly. Exactly. It's really quite amazing. And I have to say, um, I'm not a neuroscientist, no, but... but 
I find it fascinating, and I find it really inspiring. What the scientists, so the, the journey that, uh, and, and I think our understanding, and I say our in terms of the collective wisdom of sure. scientists today, understanding of how our brain actually functions, we're just starting that journey. We're only beginning in it. And it was really only just a couple of decades ago that researchers thought that basically there was huge, they knew there was huge brain development zero to five, and they knew there was huge brain development in the teenage years. And for anybody that has teenagers, <laughs> which I do, actually. So trust me, huge brain development, really interesting stuff. But what researchers thought was that at around age 2022, 20, you were basically stuck with the brain that you had. And there was a very little ability to change. And now they found that is completely untrue. Our brain continues to change throughout our entire life. So this idea of neuroplasticity, our brain is plastic. What happens after 20, and this is what the researchers found, is that we become quite habitual at that point. And so our characteristics, our traits, you know, our values, a lot of those are really set. And so it seems, and it could seem from an outside perspective, that it's hard to change. But from a brain perspective and what they've seen from a medical perspective is that you can actually, and, and oftentimes it's people who have major life-changing events, right? They were really corrupt or really all about themselves. Something happens to them and they completely change. But even more so, from a brain chemistry perspective, what they've been able to see is that if I, let's say we talked about mindfulness, mm -hmm. if I want to train myself to be able to be more focused, they've actually identified the part of the brain that is responsible for managing our attention, it grows with training. Compassion, and I know we're talking That's about that in a bit. We are. They've actually shown, and it's also related to selflessness, but they've actually shown that through training, through fMRI scans, they can actually see that after a period of weeks of training yourself to intentionally make things not about me, but about us, that part of the brain that enables us to connect socially with other people grows. How can we put mindfulness, selflessness, and compassionate leadership into practice? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. What is strategic intelligence? What does it mean to be a strategic, operational, or networking leader? I will explore these questions with Dr. Michael McAbee, author of Strategic Intelligence, Conceptual Tools for Leading Change. So, Michael, what is strategic intelligence, and what are the core elements of strategic intelligence, and could you briefly describe each of those qualities? Strategic intelligence is a, first of all, let me say it's a system. So, in other words... Each part of strategic intelligence uh, interacts with other parts. So you can't really take them apart. Second of all, let me say it is a quality that may not be in a single individual, but in a team. Now, it includes, first of all, foresight. 
uh, any strategy has to start out, what, is, what are the threats? What are the opportunities? What's coming in the future? And that has to be very clear at the top of any organization. But that has to go, be transformed into a vision of taking advantage of the threats and opportunities. So from foresight, you get visioning. But to realize the vision, to execute the vision, nobody can do it themselves. So you have to have partnering. You have to have the ability to partner with other people who complement your abilities. And it may be with customers, it may be with suppliers, because all of that may be essential to realize that vision. But then, once you have that, you've got to be able to motivate and engage your organization to realize that. And then once you're in motion, you have to be able to keep learning. And that gets back to foresight. Now, to make this work, strategic intelligence also requires that a person have a clear leadership philosophy because otherwise you're not going to be able to engage and motivate people. We'll see that more as we go on. Uh, you need to have a clear sense of a philosophy that includes your purpose. What are the practical values essential to achieve that purpose? What are, what are the basis of, of your ethical and moral decision-making? And finally, what are, you, what are you measuring? Are your measurements really reinforcing your, your purpose and your values? Furthermore, you need to have what uh, W. Edwards Deming called profound knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that includes understanding variation. That's not just statistics, but understanding the difference between causes that are based on the system, common causes, and special causes. You need systems thinking, which is crucial, because no vision today in any organization is going to really work without an understanding that you're trying to create a system where all the parts are interacting in order to further the purpose of that system. Third, you need to understand psychology mm -hmm. and particularly personality. Otherwise, you're not going to partner very well and as you see, you're not going to be able to understand what motivates and engages people, what brings out their intrinsic motivation. And finally, you need to understand how you create new knowledge mm -hmm. because any organization today to be sustainable has to be able to continually innovate, continually improve, and that involves understanding the processes of creating knowledge. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms 
can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring leadership with Jacqueline Carter, co-author of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. So Jacqueline, why should leaders express compassion and how does compassion differ from empathy? Mm, Great question. I'll start off with why, because I think that oftentimes compassion can be seen as something soft and fluffy and, yeah, exactly. And what we saw, and I think this is really interesting in terms of the research, the research shows that compassionate organizations, compassionate leaders are seen as stronger and better leaders. Compassionate organizations have stronger social cohesion within their cultures. So there's actually a really strong, compelling business case for bringing more compassion into your leadership and into your organization. In terms of, you know, why the difference between, you talked about the difference between empathy and compassion, and there's a whole bunch of research and many leaders have been told you need to be more empathetic. And specifically, the difference between empathy and compassion is, I'll give you an example, just to be able to make it visual for you, is that let's say if you were really overwhelmed and you were having a really hard day and I walked into your office and I could see, wow, you know, Michael, you're really having a tough time. What empathy would tell me to do is really feel your pain. And I'd go, wow, this really, this is terrible. Yeah, you've got all these deadlines and deliverables. You're under so much pressure. And I would sit down beside you and be miserable with you. (laughs) That's not helpful. It's absolutely not helpful. So what compassion, now you need, first of all, in order to be able to demonstrate. So compassion, again, a simple definition of compassion is the intention to be of benefit to others. Mm -hmm. Now, to be of benefit to others, you need to first be able to resonate with them. You need to be able to, okay, I walk into your office, I can see your suffering. Mm -hmm. But compassion is, instead of saying, I'm going to feel your pain, compassion actually says, okay, what could I do to be of best benefit? Because what might be of best benefit is to let you figure it out for yourself. I mean, and what might be of best benefit is to me just to say, Michael, is there anything that I can do to help you? And so compassion is really setting apart from empathy. It starts with, I mean, I need to, I need to have that ability to connect and feel what you're feeling. But really, that's just the starting point to then be able to turn it into action. What can I actually do to help alleviate that suffering that you're experiencing so that you can be better off? And again, from an organizational perspective, we can be better off. 
It's interesting. In in the book, you quote you have a great quote by uh, Peter Drucker, um, who says that you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So, what can be done to create a more mindful culture in an organization that is focused, led by a selfless leader, and has compassion in its center? Yes. First of all, I want to say that we don't necessarily claim that we've seen one organization that has been able to embody no. and embrace all of those. But you're giving what I love about the book is that you're giving tools yes. for organizations and leaders, particularly to access. Yeah, exactly. The journey that I would say for an organization that really wanted to bring in the MSC leadership into their organization is really the starting point is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so the starting point is if we as not only individuals, so me and you sitting here, but actually as a culture, if we can be more focused together, more aware together, that's really the starting point in terms of being able to then the next step, which is, okay, once we're all here, because I think one of the problems, and just to give a simple example of that from an organizational perspective, but one of the things that we love doing is talking to organizations about the value of mindfulness. And we say, let's talk about your meeting culture. Mm -hmm. oh. How often in a meeting are people paying attention? And if they're not paying attention and they're distracted oftentimes by technology, how good is that in terms of a good use of your time? And essentially one of the things that you can say from a mindfulness perspective, but it's also true just in terms of efficiency and effectiveness, if basically people are, let's say, checking their devices even if they do it under the table, mm -hmm. they're essentially leaving the room. From a mind perspective, you check your device, you get distracted, you're essentially walking out of the room and then coming back in. So starting with building a culture which says, if we're going to be here, let's, to the extent that we can, let's be here. Let's show up for one another so that we can make the best use of our time. And if in a meeting, if I'm not relevant to this particular topic on the agenda, then I'm going to intentionally pull myself out so I'm not just distracting everybody else. Mm -hmm. So that would be the essence. The starting point is really bringing that mindfulness into the culture. The second thing, which is really a natural outgrowth, is when you're more mindful, it's a natural next step to say, okay, so are we here to all serve ourselves? Because if we are, we should all be entrepreneurs and we should all have our own companies. <laughs> really, right? I mean, that's just the simplest thing. So it's a natural outgrowth to say, okay, if we're really going to be successful as an organization, that idea of not just individual selflessness, but organizational selflessness, recognizing that our best chance of, of surviving and thriving in today's business climate mm -hmm. is to be able to make sure it's about us and not about me. And then the third step would be to cultivate this idea of, and it's again, it's a natural outgrowth of saying it's not about me, it's about us. Let's, let's be kind to each other. Let's care about each other. And I just want to say, getting back to your early question about compassion and whether it's soft or business, I want to really say that compassion, and this was something that we heard again and again from the leaders that we interviewed, is compassion is actually the hard road. So for example, and again, looking at from a cultural perspective, if you're not performing well, which I'm sure would never be the case, Michael. <laughs> I mean, let's just say you're a star. But let's just say there was something that, that I saw that, that you didn't do so well. For me, what happens, and we see this so often in organizations, is, you know, people think, oh, I don't really want to confront him. I don't want to tell him that, you know, or, or he might not like it. That's not compassion. No. Because the best thing that I can do for you is tell you, and it may be just my perception, 
But the best thing that I can do for you is in a kind, compassionate, caring way, say, Michael, I saw what you did, and I didn't think it worked out so well. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And so compassion, the easiest thing to do is actually to ignore it and hope it'll go away. So the compassionate thing is actually not only is it is it tougher because it means, you know, it actually means giving the tough feedback. Sometimes it means laying people off because if we don't lay off some people, then the whole organization will suffer. So really those qualities, back to your question, you know, starting with the being here now, making it not about us and making sure we bring a true sense of caring, kindness and compassion into what we do and who we are. We see those as being the way to develop um, an MSC culture. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about that because your, your book is a wonderful combination of insights and practices. So, um, you know, how did you come up after each chapter? You have, you know, quick tips and reflections and you have some training practices in the book. It's very practical. How did you come up with it? Did you just give a sense of... Sure. There's two different types of things that we have as, as takeaways, wanting to make it practical and, and easy for people to take away things. The first set of things that we have in the book is training tools to be basically able to go to the mind gym. Yep. So as we talked about, the mind is plastic. You can train your mind to be able to be more mindful. You can train your mind to be able to be more selfless and more compassionate. And in the book, we walk through, and these are these are time-tested training techniques. We did not invent them. <laughs> these have been around for actually thousands of years uh, and that have been developed specifically to, to help us develop those qualities. And so those really are laid out. And, and just, to, just to be clear, a lot of them are really simple, and they can be, you know, just two minutes to ten minutes a day of simply going to the mind gym and being intentional about what it is that you want to basically rewire your neural network mm -hmm. to be able to change how it works, how it functions, to be able to be whatever it is that you envision yourself as being your best self as a leader. In addition to that, we also wanted to provide some really simple, simple practical tools because Mindfulness, selflessness, and compassion is also about not just who we are and how our mind works, but it's also about seeing ways to be able to bring those into our day-to-day -day leadership. So, you know, simple tool around mindfulness is, you know, turning off your phone in meetings, right, so that you're not distracted by it. It's just, you know, simple ways in terms of selflessness is, is having a gratitude practice, you know, taking a moment at the end of each day to just say, okay, who are all the people that I know helped me be successful today? And who are all the people that I don't even know that helped me be successful today? And then maybe sending a couple of notes in gratitude. Mm -hmm. Similarly with compassion, really taking an opportunity and, and seeing ways to be able to find opportunities to, to be of benefit to others. And incorporating that, you know, a simple strategy, and this was again from the interviews that we had, leaders that actually said to us when their, their mantra when they show up with a meeting with one of a member of their team, the first thing they say is, how can I be of benefit to you today? So it's simple, but it sets the intention and it makes it actually applicable in day-to-day -day leadership. Now, I know a lot of the anecdotes that you share in, your, in the case studies, so to speak, uh, are private sector, largely private sector there companies. are some government examples. Have you done? Did yeah, you do? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yes. How how did you find? Was there? <clears throat> you know, obviously, the business of government hour. Most of our focus is on um, government effectiveness and leadership. How did you see the same challenges? Did you see the same needs 
irrespective of, of sector. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was the amazing thing. It was not only irrespective of sector, but, you know, we did, as I said, get data from across, you know, 72 different countries. Mm-hmm. Oh, so we, we found that it was amazing. And it's basically because, you know, the mind is the same. Well, yeah. <laughs> Our tendencies. The missions may be different. The missions may be different, but because, yeah, because that journey comes back, because especially what we were looking at as you asked me up front, you know, really what are those basic human drivers? We all want to have that sense of purpose and meaning. And as leaders to be able to lead for that mm-hmm. is really, it doesn't matter whether you're in government. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we did find uh, in our interviews with uh, from a more government sector is certainly... I think, you know, the the idea of being of service takes on a little bit of a different mantra because, of course, it's different, you know, organizations, you could say whether it's good or bad, but when there's a profit motivation, looking at an ROI is a little bit different than might be in a government sector where it is all about being of service. And I think one of the things we found is that it can actually lead to more burnout in terms of people being so focused on service that they're not taking care of themselves um, or that they get, you know, overwhelmed by, you know, how can we, how can we do more? And I think that that's, again, why we say, you know, taking care of yourself is actually the starting point to being able to be more effective leader. So, Jacqueline, is there anything else you wanted to talk about today that we may have missed? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we found and we were so inspired by in terms of the organizations that we saw was organizations that are really putting their people first. Mm -hmm. So what we see as being people-centric organizations. And that to us was, it's it's an emerging trend, and I think it's specifically the opposite of organizations that put shareholders first. And for all those shareholders out there, we know (laughs) that that's important. But really what we saw was organizations that recognized, and, and Married is probably the best example of this. And what's amazing, and this, the, the story of, uh, of Marriott, and many people may know this, but, you know, starting out with J.W. Marriott and his, his wife, Alice, I mean, they actually had a sign in the first pop shop that they had was basically, if we take care of our people, our, 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 our employees, they will take care of our clients, and then business will take care of itself. And that was something that they found as a founding principle was that focusing on their people first, so being a truly people-centric organization, was the best strategy to have a successful business. And in the last, and it's really been just in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, there's been this tremendous shift on shareholder wealth. And what's been lost in that is you focus on shareholder wealth at the expense of employee health you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really inspired by is organizations that are really shifting that and saying, you know what, it may cost us in terms of, you know, the quarterly results, but it's better for our employees. And what's the best thing for our employees and taking care of our employees as being the first and foremost thing that they should do in an organization? Well, you know, this is a follow-up. You mentioned that company um, in your dealings. um, Is it a one-off? In other words, is it just a particular company, idiosyncratic to that company that they're putting, uh, they're, they're aspiring to uh, people first? Or do you see maybe a trend in sectors? We see, well, we do definitely see, um, we see a trend across 
many different sectors, I would say. Um, Accenture is another company that we work a lot with. And it's one of the things that they have made part of their overall strategy. One of the things that they've talked about is is creating a people-centric culture. And as part of that, creating what we're also very aligned with is what they call truly human leadership. Mm -hmm. And that was another big trend that we saw is this recognition that, and it was actually a quote from one of the interviews that we did, a senior executive with Audi Volkswagen. And he basically said that management today is about unlearning all of the management tools and relearning being human. (laughs) And it really is true. And I think that this idea of putting people first, showing up as a human being and being authentic and being real and really caring about other people, we kind of know all that. But if we don't enable ourselves to be able to show up in that way and give ourselves the space to lead from a truly human perspective, then we're not going to put people first. And honestly, I think that's the other maybe key message that we see is back to what you first asked about, you know, what are the challenges for leaders today? What we see is that change has always been with us, but it's getting faster. And it's getting more complicated. And also just in terms of other factors that we see, you know, environmental factors, I mean, we're just expecting, you know, the road ahead is going to be difficult in terms of the disruption that we're going to see not only in business, but also in our lives. And our best, I think, weapon to be able to make sure that that we thrive and survive in that is social cohesion, helping each other, being present and kind and caring about each other. Because that's what's enabled us uh, throughout human history to be able to be successful and And we believe and be resilient. And that's what we believe will be our success going forward. How can folks um, who are interested to learn more about uh, this work get in touch with you? And do you have an app? I believe you do. We do have an app. So the best way to get in touch with us and find information on the app is to go to our website. So www.thepotentialproject.com. Actually, it's just potentialproject.com. Know the. And basically what you can see there is, and again, we're a global organization Mm -hmm. and we have also here in Washington, we have local facilitators to be able to support people. If they're interested in finding out more, they can reach out to to us through the website and being able to find out about more programs and services. But in addition to that, they can find out there's a section on our website for the book. So more information about the book, including launch events, including some resources, including connection to the app, which includes the mind training tools that I talked about. And uh, you can access all of it right there. That's perfect. Thank you, Jacqueline. It's great to have you today. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for coming in. really great to be a part of this. Thank you so much. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring mindful leadership with Jacqueline Carter, co-author with Rasmus Hugard of The Mind of the Leader, How to Lead Yourself, Your People, and Your Organization for Extraordinary Results. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How do state social services agencies use technology to meet their missions? How is the state of Florida doing just that? 
What can other states learn from the work of the Florida Department of Children and Families? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Joe Vestola, Chief Information Officer at the Florida Department of Children and Families. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. 